Without further ado, let's get started, folks. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Roy Brower. Uh, Dr. Brower is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the medical director of their uh, medical intensive care unit. He's the director of the critical care medicine program uh, within the division of pulmonary critical care. Dr. Brower uh, began his uh, BA at, at Cornell University, followed up uh, with his MD at Johns Hopkins, did his residency at Hopkins and um, subsequent fellowship there as well. He stayed on, um, so I guess a lifer at this point, and uh, during that time, his contributions to academic medicine have truly been monumental. Uh, Dr. Brower's research has uh, heavily involved uh, cardiopulmonary, uh, various cardiopulmonary areas, uh, many uh, of his publications and uh, grants surround the work of ARDS. Uh, he is um, a big part of the ARDS network um, for two decades. Uh, he's um, part of the, he's the steering committee chair of the pedal network, which also um, addresses ARDS this time in the form of prevention, early treatment. Um, he's, his work has yielded over 150 publications. He's on the editorial board of critical care medicine and um, from a teaching standpoint, uh, he has won multiple awards, both from uh, fellows um, within uh, the Johns Hopkins program, as well as uh, won the Outstanding Teaching Award for, from the Osler uh, House staff in 2015, most recently. Uh, he's been honored by the American Thoracic, Thoracic Society um, for, with a Lifetime Achievement Award this past year. And it's an absolute pleasure, Dr. Brower, for you to come over here and talk to us about ARDS. Thank you. Well, this is working good enough, microphone? Okay, thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, it's nice to be back at University of Maryland. I always like coming over here, exchanging ideas. Some of you know, I've known Carl Shanholtz for a long time. He was a fellow with us in the early 90s, and uh, he and I have collaborated on many clinical research projects over the years, and we'll try to come up with something new today. Today, I'm going to talk about driving pressure. It's an idea we've had for a little while, um, and I think there are some insights we can gain. So driving pressure, um, and I'll try to answer those three questions. What is it? Why care about it? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Um, I have no disclosures relevant to this, uh, this presentation or this topic. Um, I like to start out with um, a, a few historical notes, and, and this uh, many of you will recognize as the title page from the report in The Lancet 1967 where the, uh, the syndrome of acute respiratory distress in adults um, was uh, first reported. Um, <clears throat> that was 1967. A short time after this report, the same investigators uh, published in a surgical journal uh, mainly about their, um, about their use of mechanical ventilation in, in ARDS. It's interesting to think about why this syndrome gets described in 1967, because the, the diseases that cause it, and in this report, it's mainly pneumonia and sepsis, may also mention trauma 
patients, especially uh, soldiers in Vietnam, getting shock lung, which they say looks just like their, their syndrome here. Um, so I, I think the reason why it, it's reported in 1967 is that um, it really wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that uh, mechanical ventilation was used to, uh, to support patients with acute respiratory failure. Um, you know, it was in the, in the 50s and 60s that we uh, occasionally used ventilators out on the wards. And in the late 60s, um, some, some hospitals developed intensive care units. Mine didn't. We didn't open our first ICU until 1971. Um, so in, the, in their mid to late 60s, patient, a lot of patients who would have died without ventilators, they, they survived long enough. And then these guys and some others could observe what, what, they, what did they look like. Um, and, and that uh, patients with different diseases, trauma, pneumonia, pancreatitis, they, they all look similar in many ways. Um, so I mentioned that other paper where they, they explain how they're using ventilators, and this is basically their approach. Um, generous tidal volumes, um, which they, uh, they used mainly because it was good for gas exchange. There's a lot of dead space in ARDS. And if you want to maintain a normal PCO2 and pH, then you need to ventilate a lot. Uh, so those generous tidal volumes were used. And then they used modest levels of PEEP uh, because with those modest levels, um, they could maintain acceptable arterial oxygenation in most patients with FiO2s less than 70%. And 70% was thought then, and I guess many people still think now, is the threshold for oxygen toxicity. Um, we can talk about that assumption another time, uh, but that's what they believed, and therefore that's why they said we, we, we get away with peeps of 5 to 12 centimeters of water in most patients. Um, we've subsequently learned that, that that approach, generous tidal volumes and relatively low levels of peep, um, can cause ventilator-induced lung injury. And there, there are several mechanisms of ventilator-induced lung injury, uh, but um, keep things in simple terms, which is okay for today. Um, there's ventilator-induced lung injury from high volume and high pressure, you know, over distension, stretching um, the lung parenchyma. Uh, and you get a lot of that if, uh, if half the lung is taken out by all this inflammation and alveolar filling, and then you jam a generous tidal volume into this relatively restricted aerated region of lung. Another mechanism of Ventilator-induced lung injury occurs when volumes fall to relatively low levels during expiration. So low volume, low pressure ventilator-induced lung injury. You know, one simple way to think of the uh, what's going on there is, is some small bronchioles and alveoli will collapse in exhalation and then reopen with the next inspiration. Uh, and if that happens 30 times per minute, 1,800 times per hour, 30,000 times per day, uh, then that's probably pretty rough and probably is going to cause some injury. So two forms of ventilator-induced lung injury. Mechanical ventilation, we're pretty sure, is critical for survival of many of our ARDS patients. Um, we can support gas exchange um, for a while, and we buy time for antibiotics to work and perhaps some other treatments that might work. Uh, but mainly we're buying time um, for natural healing processes to kick in. Um, <clears throat> But ventilators can cause acute lung injury, and, it, and in some patients, it may prevent recovery because of ventilator-induced lung injury. Many people think this is the first report of uh, ventilator-induced lung injury other than barrow trauma. Uh, this is from, uh, from Webb and Tierney, working in Southern California. 
1974. Um, these are macroscopic views of rat lungs ventilated on the left with a peak inspiratory pressure of 14 and zero peep uh, for one hour, and that lung is pretty much normal. In contrast, uh, peak inspiratory pressure of 45 with zero of peep, this lung is very injured, hemorrhage, neutrophilic infiltration, vascular permeability, and so on. And the lung in the middle is also injured, but not as much as this one, um, because they ventilated um, with some PEEP. So like I said, many people think this is the first report of ventilator-induced lung injury um, in an animal model, uh, but that's not true. Um, I, I think this is the first report. Um, and the, uh, the first author, Lazar Greenfield, you may recognize that name, he, he gave us the Greenfield filter. He was a thoracic surgeon and he was uh, concerned that many of his patients started out during his operations with good gas exchange, but that it deteriorated during a three or four hour operation. And he thought maybe it was the large tidal volumes that were causing a problem, and he demonstrated exactly that, that if uh, the dog lungs are ventilated with large tidal volumes, 24 hours later, sacrifice the animal, create a lung homogenate, and he demonstrated that the surface tension properties um, were very different and deleterious. It, it, basically, the, the lung had lost its surfactant properties. Uh, if he kept the log alive for another 24 hours rather than sacrificing it 24 hours, um, the surf surfactant properties were returning. So it was a reversible form of, of acute lung injury caused by over distension. This report comes two, two years later. Um, effect of ventilation on surface forces in excised dog lungs. This is a remarkable report. By the way, that's my, my mentor, Saul Permit, who died about three years ago. Um, it's remarkable because they examined every imaginable way that you could ventilate lungs, different, different tidal volumes, different peeps, different FiO2s, concentrations of nitrogen, temperature, and so on. Um, and, and one of the things that they, uh, they demonstrated in this report is that PEEP could have lung protective effects. Without PEEP, the surface tension properties fell apart within an hour or two, uh, but with PEEP, the surface tension properties were preserved. So I, I think this is the first demonstration of the lung protective effects of PEEP. So this colorful drawing is useful um, to demonstrate two forms of ventilator-induced lung injury. The yellow line represents lung volume over time, two breaths. Um, ventilator-induced lung injury from over distension as the uh, lung volume uh, reaches into the pink and red zone. And ventilator-induced lung injury from opening and closing uh, at those low volumes and pressures. <clears throat> so driving pressure. Uh, we have this report in the New England last year, driving pressure and survival in the acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, what is driving pressure? Uh, this drawing of airway pressure versus time uh, illustrates driving pressure. Um, there, there's PEEP, here's peak inspiratory pressure. If we uh, push the button that says inspiratory pause, uh, then the ventilator closes all of its valves after a breath of air is delivered and then we get a plateau pressure. The difference between plateau pressure and PEEP <coughs> is the driving pressure. So simple, simple arithmetic, plateau minus PEEP equals driving pressure. Why were we interested in driving pressure? Um, we go back to this drawing, it's, it, it helps us 
to, um, to explain why, why are we interested in, in driving pressure. If, we, um, if we're concerned about ventilator-induced lung injury from opening and closing, we, we can raise the PEEP and by so doing stent some alveoli open, prevent them from closing and reopening. But if we do that, then the pressure during inspiration will rise. And even if we're using a smaller tidal volume, um, that peak pressure and volume may rise into the pink and red zone. So how do you know uh, whether raising PEEP is going to be beneficial or detrimental? What, what parameters should we follow? Plateau pressure? Should it be peak pressure? Right? Will PEEP alone tell us uh, what, to, what to do? Well, we, uh, we wanted to know which of the various variables that we can measure and control are really where the money is. You know, some people, a lot of people for years bet on PEEP. They, they've, they've thought that higher PEEP has to be the way to go, the open lung approach. You know, and there are some <laughs> real enthusiasts for that. Um, so we, um, we did a, a meta-analysis utilizing the, the data on over 3,000 patients that were, who were enrolled in these nine clinical trials. Uh, and I say it's an individual patient meta-analysis because the, the unit of analysis was one patient, whereas in a traditional meta-analysis, it's one study. So we have over 3,000 data points. And all, all of these nine trials are trials of various lung protective ventilation strategies. Um, so we combined uh, all of those data, all of those patient data together into one big data set. And then we entered these variables into our model. Um, there are two groups of variables, patient variables on the left, mechanical ventilation variables on the right. Um, you know, many of these you will think of as good predictors of mortality. Um, some of them maybe you won't. Um, plateau pressure is there, tidal volume is there, PEEP, and driving pressure at the bottom right here. So which of these variables withstood the, uh, the regression analysis? It's those four. Um, if you know those four, then none of the other variables predicted outcome. Um, and notice that driving pressure um, has the strongest odds ratio there uh, among all of, these, um, all of these variables. So driving pressure seems to be an important predictor of outcome. And therefore, um, <clears throat> Maybe we should pay more attention to it. Maybe we should adjust ventilators more carefully in order to reduce driving pressure. And by so doing, maybe we'll, we'll reduce mortality. So here's a pressure volume sketch. Airway pressure on the horizontal axis, volume on the vertical axis. Um, and the, the um, orange line is a tidal volume. So we're starting this tidal volume at a relatively low level of, of PEEP. Um, and this, pressure, this difference in pressure from the PEEP up to the plateau pressure, that's the driving pressure. Right? So tidal volume and, um, and driving pressure. And those are the two determinants of driving pressure. Tidal volume uh, and compliance, those are the two determinants. So here's, uh, here's a simple example. Um, driving pressure, as I've mentioned, is plateau minus PEEP and it's determined by the tidal volume in the numerator here and the compliance in the denominator. So for example, imagine you have a patient on 400 milliliters tidal volume, which might be six milliliters per kilogram for that patient. The compliance is 25, which is moderately to severely decreased. 
The driving pressure is 400 divided by 25 or 16 centimeters of water. Um, so you'll see in a, in a couple minutes, 16 is a little on the high side compared to all ARDS patients. The average uh, driving pressure in those 3,500 patients in our analysis was about 14 or 15. Okay. Now keep in mind that centimeters of water is just a convenient manometric way of measuring and reporting pressure. Um, the true units of pressure are its force per unit area. So for example, 16 centimeters of water converts to 32.77 pounds per square foot. So driving pressure, any pressure is in units of stress. And driving pressure is the change in stress that occurs in the lung uh, during a breath, uh, a breath of air going in. So it's the change in stress. A related concept is strain. Now, stress and strain sort of go hand in hand, but strain is, is a little bit different, and some engineers think strain is really what predicts um, how a material will withstand something that's um, stressful, so to speak. So it's the ratio of the total deformation to the initial dimension of the material uh, in which the forces are being applied. So imagine this is, this is a rubber band, or a strip of rubber that's in its resting length and then you stretch it uh, by an amount delta L. The strain is delta L over L. Right, so stress and strain, two very closely related topics or concepts. Uh, and uh, driving pressure is the change in the stress and related to the change in the strain uh, in the lung during inspiration. So this is a complicated slide and we'll leave it up here for a little while because it, I think it's, really, it's a really cool slide to, to get a couple of take-home messages about why we think driving pressure is important. So two rows of graphs. Uh, on the top row, we have a pressure or a sum of pressures. Let's start here. These are subsets of the 3,500 patients in our meta-analysis. Um, <clears throat> And they are divided into five groups with increasing levels of driving pressure. So these are the patients with the lowest quintile of driving pressure. Here's the highest quintile of driving pressure. The way these data are sorted and reassorted is in such a way that all of these groups of patients have the same level of PEEP. Right? So with the same level of PEEP, if driving pressure increases, um, the plateau pressures, of course, are increasing because each of these values is a plateau pressure. And the mortality, the relative risk of death, increases. Right? I'm not surprised by that because I've been a, a fan of plateau pressure as a predictor of, of mortality. Um, but is it the plateau pressure or is it the driving pressure? Let's look at this graph here. <clears throat> here we have constant driving pressure with increasing peaks. Plateau pressures once again are increasing from left to right here just like they do here. Right? But the relative risk of, of death in each of these quintiles is the same. So by comparing this graph to this graph, what we see is that driving pressure um, is, is, the, is the medium here. That's what's causing the increase uh, in mortality. You know, plateau pressure predicts mortality only if it's with increasing driving pressure. 
Right? So driving pressure appears to be where the money is there. Now let's look at this graph. Here we have constant plateau pressures, increasing PEEP. Now the aficionados of higher PEEP would say this is going to correlate with lower mortality. And it does. The, the aficionados of higher PEEP are, are going to think that's because of higher PEEP. However, here we have higher PEEP and no difference in mortality. So by comparing this graph to this graph, once again we see that the medium, the, the, um, the causal pathway is driving pressure. It's not higher PEEP. You, you get lower mortality with higher PEEP only if driving pressure goes down. That's what's going on here. If driving pressure does not go down, then higher PEEP does not give you lower mortality. So driving pressure appears to be a very important predictor of outcome, more so than PEEP, more so than plateau pressure. Tidal volume didn't even survive the analysis, nor did plateau pressure or PEEP. This, these graphs demonstrate what happens if, if patients are receiving good lung protective ventilation as defined by a tidal volume less than or equal to seven milliliters per kilogram with a plateau pressure below 30. So we removed all patients who did not meet those criteria. On the top, you see two lines, one with a driving pressure less than or equal to 14, the other with a driving pressure greater than 14. The mortality, the survival experience is better with a lower driving pressure. Not surprising based on what I've been telling you. In the middle, we have two lines which are virtually concurrent, one with a in which plateau pressures are consistently under 25, <coughs> and the other where the plateau pressures are consistently greater than 25. Right? If you were a true believer in plateau pressure, then you'd predict you would predict that these lines are going to diverge with the lower plateau pressure line having a better survival experience. But in fact, they are the same. And the reason they're the same is because we're adjusting for, for driving pressure. It's like the driving pressure is constant in these two lines and at the same level. And finally, here you see two lines represented, representing two different tidal volumes, one greater than six, the other less than six. Again, the driving pressure is constant. Uh, and the um, survival experience is the same. Right, so if you hold driving pressure constant, nothing else makes a difference. But if you allow driving pressure to differ, as it does here, um, then mortality rates are different. This demonstrates the, uh, the relationship of driving pressure here on the horizontal axis to the relative risk of death. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the average driving pressure in the whole set of patients is about 14 or 15. And when you get above that level, this line appears to take off. And when you're below that level, there's still a slope there, but it's not as steep. But lower driving pressure is always better. Now, this is, a, this is a, an important graph, I think. It's taken from the ARDS network higher PEEP study, the study that we called alveoli. Um, <clears throat> In that study, we knew um, driving pressures before and after PEEP was raised. Um, and so in the gray line, the third line here, that's all patients in the study, uh, in, the, in the lower PEEP arm. The top line is where the mean driving pressure decreased 
by minus by 3.7 centimeters of water when we went from usual care peep to higher peep. So driving pressure decreased as a result of raising peep and the mortality rate there is, is, is better than it is here. Here there's no change in driving pressure. Here the driving pressure actually increased when PEEP was raised because some patients are like that. Some patients, some patients you get a decrease in driving pressure representing recruitment when you raise PEEP and in other patients you get an increase in driving pressure representing over distension when you raise PEEP. So if you over distend like you do here, the, the survival experience is, um, is not favorable. Okay, so driving pressure, as I said earlier, is tidal volume divided by compliance. Those are the two determinants. The most straightforward way of manipulating driving pressure um, for the benefit of our patients is to decrease the tidal volume. And we did that you know, 15 years ago after the ARDS Network tidal volume trial. But what else can we do to decrease driving pressure? Well, we, we, maybe we can recruit some lung. Now there, well, before I get to this, here is um, lower tidal volume, six milliliters per kilogram. With a, uh, I just made up a driving pressure of 18. So typically, if the plateau pressure in this patient is below 30, we'll leave the tidal volume where it is. But maybe, maybe we should decrease tidal volumes below six. Because if we do, we can decrease the driving pressure. We go down to four milliliters per kilogram, there's the driving pressure, maybe it's 13. A decrease in driving pressure of three centimeters of water is, is worthwhile. Um, so the idea that our goal tidal volume should be six, I think we should question it. I don't think we should go back to the ICUs today and start turning tidal volumes down below six. The reason being is that the, the analysis that we did uh, almost everybody was on a tidal volume goal of six. Uh, and if instead they were on a, a goal of five or four or below, then the results of the analysis might have come out different. But I, th I think we should, re we should question whether six is the right goal. I know some people say six is too low, seven, eight, or nine is better. Uh, I reject that idea reasons we can get into another time. I think maybe five or four should be our goal, but we'll have to demonstrate that with good studies. All right, let's get back to setting PEEP uh, in the context of thinking about driving pressure. So I mentioned uh, earlier Ashbob, Bigelow, Petty, and Levine, the, the guys who reported the syndrome of acute respiratory distress in adults. They, um, they adjusted PEEP to achieve this. Um, uh, PEEP of 5 to 12 because it, allow acceptable, it allowed acceptable arterial oxygenation with an FiO2 less than or equal to 70%. <clears throat> but with that approach, uh, many regions of lung uh, are probably experiencing opening and closing with each breath. As you know, many, uh, many people bet on higher PEEP, but three large randomized clinical trials of traditional versus lower PEEP strategies did not demonstrate a benefit. Right, these three, three large trials, one the ARDS network, the Canadian critical trials group, uh, and then the French uh, group led by Laurent Brochard. These are the numbers of patients in these three clinical trials. These are the mortality rates in the higher PEEP groups and lower PEEP groups. ARDS network leaned the wrong way. Higher mortality in the higher PEEP group, not significant. These two studies leaned 
in favor of higher peak, but again, not significant. Uh, when I add all this up, this is a crude meta-analysis of those three studies. And as you can see, the difference in mortality rate is small and not even close to being significant. So why didn't higher PEEP work? Um, well, this table shows driving changes in driving pressure that resulted from higher PEEP in the three studies. So these are the plateau pressures, these are the PEEPs, that pressure minus that pressure gives us a driving pressure. Driving pressures were lower in the higher PEEP group in the ARDS network study by 2.8 centimeters of water. Not a big deal. Uh, in the Canadian and French studies, there was, there was even less of a difference in driving pressure. So small differences in driving pressures, no difference in mortality. Compare this to what happened in the ARDS network tidal volume trial, where the tidal volumes were 12 and 6 milliliters per, kilogra per kilogram predicted body weight. The difference in driving pressure there was almost 9 centimeters of water, and there was a big difference in mortality, 9%. So the current thinking about these trials is that um, a mistake was made. So maybe the reason there was no difference in mortality in those higher peak trials is because the, there were, conf there were um, conflicting effects of higher PEEP in every patient. One effect was to reduce ventilator induced <coughs> lung injury from low volume and low pressure, you know, the opening closing problem. But it increased ventilator induced lung injury from over distension. And the net effect uh, in patients on average was no effect. Right, a good effect and a bad effect, and on balance, no effect. I think a better explanation, though, is that um, effects of PEEP are variable between patients. Um, ARDS, as you know, is a syndrome. It's not a well-defined disease that's very predictable. Um, some patients have diffuse infiltrates like this. Some have rather focal or low-bar infiltrates like this. Um, those with more diffuse infiltrates, they tend to be more recruitable. Um, so if we go from zero end expiratory pressure, ZEEP, and apply some PEEP here, patients like this will tend to have a lot of recruitment and will have relatively little over distension. In contrast, patients like this will tend to have lots of over distension and very little recruitment. Right, so it, now, this business of recruitability and non-recruitability, it's, it's hard to predict. There's a tendency of the patients with diffuse infiltrates to be more recruitable, but even that is not a very good predictor. But the important point here is that some patients do recruit. You know, op they open up lung and others don't, at least within the uh, range of pressures that clinicians are willing to apply. So it, how to set PEEP, in my mind, is like the holy grail. It's been like this now for 20 years, and it still is. Who are the PEEP responders? Who, who recruits when we raise PEEP? How much PEEP should we apply in the responders? When should we decrease the PEEP in the responders? And what about the non-responders? How much PEEP should they get, if any? Right? These are all relevant questions, um, and maybe driving pressure will give us some answers. That's where I'm going. Um, so here's a study that's relatively old now, 10, 10, or, 10 or 11 years, in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care, Italian group. Um, they took a bunch of ARDS patients, and they applied different levels of PEEP on the horizontal axis. 
here are the, this baseline is zero PEEP. Here the patients are put on the ARDS network lower PEEP table. So they had PEEPs like 10 or 12 centimeters of water with FiO2s of 60%. That's a, one of the combinations on the lower PEEP table. And then they, they transitioned the patients over to the higher PEEP table. So they might have PEEP of 14 with 40% oxygen. And they used a spirometric technique for measuring how much lung was recruited, how much volume of lung was recruited in going from ZEEP, zero end expiratory pressure, lower PEEP, higher PEEP. And, the, and these patients separated themselves out into two groups the responders and the non-responders. Responders were in going from lower PEEP to higher PEEP, substantially more volume was recruited. Whereas in the non-responders, there's some recruitment in going from zero to the lower PEEP table, but virtually no additional recruitment um, in going to the higher PEEP table. Right. So do you need this spirometric maneuver to, to know who's responding and who's not? By the way, it was not a very difficult spirometric maneuver, but it's not in our clinical repertoire. But it is in our repertoire to measure arterial PO2 divided by FiO2. In the responders, the P to F ratios increased from 150 to 396. In contrast, the non-responders had no increase in the P to F ratio. So maybe that's all we need to do. I think it's a bit of an oversimplification. Uh, other studies trying to identify recruiters from non-recruiters did not find it as simple as this. Um, <clears throat> Gattinoni's report in New England Journal on recruitability in ARDS, that he, he came down to three variables, uh, not just P to F ratio, but one of his variables was P to F ratio. Okay. So this is one approach we might take. The problem with this approach um, is that uh, maybe it's easier to identify responders, right? and you don't need any special equipment for this. Uh, but it doesn't really tell you what's the optimal PEEP. It just tells you, yes, this patient is a responder, uh, and may maybe he should get higher PEEP. Right? Also, some patients probably need lower PEEP than they receive on the lower PEEP table. So how much lower should we go? Another approach for setting PEEP is known as stress index. This is Marco Ranieri's idea. And these three graphs illustrate stress index in three different clinical scenarios. To measure stress index, we have to put a patient on a constant inspiratory flow during the tidal volume, square wave. With that constant flow, the airway opening pressure may rise like this. It jumps up because the inspiratory flow jum jumps up. But, and then the pressure continues to rise, but the slope decreases. Decreasing slope um, means increasing compliance. And increasing compliance means you're recruiting lung during the breath, and you don't want that to happen. If you recruit during the breath in, then you de-recruit during the breath out, and that's ventilator-induced lung injury from low volume, low pressure. In contrast, with constant inspiratory flow, if that pressure increases in slope during inspiration, that means compliance is decreasing during the breath, and we're probably over-distending the lung. We don't want that. What we do want is this, a constant, uh, constant slope of the airway pressure versus time graph during inspiration. Stress index 
Um, you, we get a stress index by fitting each of these lines to this equation. Airway opening pressure equals a constant times the inspiratory time raised to a constant B, and that is the stress index right there, plus another constant C. If the stress index is less than one, it means this is happening and we're opening and closing injury, causing injury. If the stress index is greater than one, we're over distending, and if the stress index is close to one, then um, you have neither. Um, so it, I find it useful to think about the stress index on a, a graph of airway opening pressure versus volume, as shown here. So here's a stress index that's less than one, and we're and that orange bar is a tidal volume. And as you can see, we're, the slope of this pressure volume curve is increasing um, during the breath in, telling you that there's a lot of recruitment going on, and then de-recruitment during exhalation. If we raise the PEEP, now we'll have a stress index close to one, uh, and the slope of that graph is neither increasing nor decreasing. If we raise the PEEP too much, then the stress index will exceed one, because we're in the zone of over-distension. So I think this was kind of a nifty idea. It's supported by a study in, in an animal model, in sheep, in which um, we see on the horizontal axis of each of these graphs uh, the coefficient B, or stress index. Here is total airway injury score. This is histology. Um, and with a stress index close to one, the histologic injury to a group of, of sheep was relatively low. But when the stress index was lower or higher than one, then there's more injury as indicated by histology. Something similar with TNF, although this is kind of a messy relationship. Same thing with IL-6. It appears that a stress index of one gives the lowest concentrations of IL-6. And this, this is in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. And there's MIP2. MIP Again, the lowest levels are when the stress index is close to one. Here's another study from that Italian group I mentioned earlier, um, where they took a 15 patients with what they called low bar ARDS, where the, where the consolidations were all in the dorsal regions of the lung. These are patients who are probably not very recruitable. <clears throat> and they measured their stress indices on ARDS network ventilator settings, tidal volume six, PEEP of approximately 10 or 12, FiO2 50 or 60 percent on average. <coughs> Excuse me. They then adjusted the PEEP to minimize, well, to, to get the drive, to get the, they adjusted PEEP in order to get the driving pressure closer to one. Before adjusting the PEEP, the stress indices are all, all above 1.1. After adjusting PEEP to reduce the stress index, here you see stress indices close to one, Notice that every, the way they got these stress indices down in these non-recruitable patients, in every one of them they had to lower the PEEP. They lowered the PEEP from 12 down to about 7. Plateau pressures, not surprisingly, um, <clears throat> decreased when they lowered the PEEP. They also reported what happened with gas exchange, and the PDEF ratios decreased only a little bit when they lowered the PEEPs from, from 12 or 14 down to seven. The PCO2s actually decreased. Four millimeters of mercury PCO2, every patient decreased PC, their PCO2, so this was a, significant, a statistically significant difference. And I suspect the reason for lower PCO2 is that 
with lower PEEP, there was less dead space in the lungs. Finally, they lavaged the lungs uh, and measured mediators under the two conditions, ARDS network ventilator settings with relatively higher PEEP and then with lower PEEPs, and they find lower concentrations of IL-6, IL-8, and soluble TNF receptor. <clears throat> so stress index, they suggest, was a good thing to monitor in those patients and a good way to adjust PEEP. Problem with the stress index is that you, need, you do need special monitoring equipment. You have to measure the pressure at the airway opening. You, you can't really use the pressure that the ventilator displays because that pressure is damped um, <clears throat> because of the way it's measured and the location where it's measured. And patients must be relaxed during inspiration. If they're triggering the ventilator, um, they're not relaxed during inspiration and you can't measure stress index. Now, going back to this drawing, let me point out <clears throat> that with constant inspiratory flow in each of these circumstances, <clears throat> time is the same as volume, right? Because time times flow, or flow times time, gives me equals volume. So we don't really need a square wave, um, <clears throat> and we don't need to get a laptop computer to calculate a stress index for us. Driving pressure will give us the same answer. So here is, <clears throat> here's the driving pressure under this circumstance where we're over, over distending the lung. If we decrease the PEEP, we can get the driving pressure um, smaller going from here to here because we're on this relatively rectilinear portion of the pressure volume curve. If we're recruiting along with each breath, then we're here. We raise PEEP, the driving pressure will decrease. So you, don't need, you don't need the stress index. What you need is driving pressure. Uh, and I'll finish just in another couple of minutes selling the idea that driving pressure is simple and easy. You can do it today at the bedside. Um, uh, and it will um, tell you whether your patient is on a good level of PEEP uh, or if there's a better level of PEEP, if you believe the driving pressure um, predicts mortality. So here is a patient, hypothetical patient, with a tidal volume of six, driving pressure is 18. Looks like we're recruiting and de-recruiting there with each breath. Right. If we raise the PEEP, the driving pressure now goes down to 14, hypothetical patient. If we raise the PEEP too much, the driving pressure goes back up to 18. So by raising and lowering the PEEP in small increments, and I, I do this in increments of four centimeters of water. Um, I think if you use smaller increments or decrements of PEEP, you're gonna have a signal to noise ratio problem. So small changes in PEEP, measure the driving pressure at each level of PEEP, and, and empirically identify the level of PEEP where the driving pressure is minimized. Okay, so driving pressure, Special monitoring equipment is not needed. You can just take the measurements right off the ventilator itself. It's okay if your patients are making inspiratory efforts. And nowadays, you know, because we've lightened up sedation and we don't want diaphragms becoming atrophied, uh, at least in, in my ICU, most patients are triggering the ventilator. Patient must be relaxed during exhalation uh, because if they're not, then the plateau pressure you get will not be a true plateau pressure. So in order to know whether they're reasonably relaxed or not, I measure, I do three measurements of the plateau pressure at each level of PEEP 
Uh, and if they're consistent, you know, within one or two centimeters of water of each other, then I think that means the patient is reasonably relaxed during, ex during exhalation. Yeah. Thank you very much for your attention. Take 10 minutes, a question or two. Yeah, the, the question is, are there any prospective randomized trials of using driving pressure? I don't know of any. Um, what we're doing in my ICU, one, one of our fellows, uh, Serena Sahetia, um, we're collecting data on ARDS patients to see just how much we can decrease the driving pressure with this approach. You know, because may, maybe it's all theory, but in practice you don't get much out of it. She did submit an abstract to the ATS, for the ATS meeting that, that shows that the average change in driving pressure is about three point something centimeters of water. And in half the patients, you get that by lowering the PEEP. You know, maybe about a third of the patients, you lower the PEEP, and about a third of the patients, you raise the PEEP, and about a third of the patients, there's hardly any change in PEEP. Now, three centimeters of water, um, if we look at, um, it may seem like um, not that much, but on this graph, a three centimeter of water change in PEEP results in about a five to 10% difference in mortality. You can't read that directly off of this because the vertical axis is relative risk. But we've, we've done some arithmetic to convert risk into actual mortality. There was another question back there. Yeah, uh, terrific talk, thank you. How often do you do this? Yeah. Uh, so the patient's physiology is changing, you know, yeah. getting better, they're getting worse. Uh, so you set the dry pressure the first day, maybe. Yeah. Do you do this every day? Uh, I, I, I do it twice a day. Twice a day. First thing in the morning and last thing before I go home. Uh, and generally, if, if you set it in the morning and, and nothing changes, you know, you, no, nobody's changed the PEEP, or the tidal volume, then hardly anything will be changed with respect to the driving pressure. But you know, the whole exercise takes five or 10 minutes. Well, great talk. Uh, when you're, if you choose to just fix your tidal volume, you just, you're set on six or whatever you decide it may be, could you also look at that's exactly what we're doing. And if, if, you, if you're in a volume cycle assist control mode, then driving pressure tells you whether the compliance is increasing or decreasing. I mean, you can calculate compliance if you want, but that's, that's an extra step that's just not necessary. Incidentally, some of you will remember Peter Souter's optimal PEEP article in New England Journal 30 years ago. In that, in that report, he demonstrated that oxygen delivery measured with a thermodilution catheter would be maximized when respiratory system compliance is maximized. So he, he said we should raise and lower the PEEP until the compliance is maximized uh, and then oxygen delivery will be maximized. And he was very focused, as a lot of people were back then, on oxygen delivery. The thinking was that critically ill patients, ARDS patients, sepsis patients, they need more oxygen. Uh, and by adjusting PEEP in this fashion, will improve oxygen delivery. 
you know, Gattinoni and a couple of others subsequently showed that maximizing oxygen delivery didn't really make any difference. So it seemed to be the wrong reason to adjust the peak. But we're doing the same thing as Souter did uh, because we think driving pressure is a good thing to, to monitor. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Brown.